Welcome to the Radical Departures podcast, your source for startup storytelling. We're your hosts, Abby and Chris. You'll hear informative discussions full of valuable expertise and actionable insight on the issues you face when launching and growing your startup. This is episode two of the Radical Departures podcast. Our guest today is Phil Wakenell, co-founder and chief inspiration officer at Ideas on Stage. He coaches entrepreneurs, business people, conference participants, and anyone else who needs it on how to give better, engaging, and meaningful presentations, TED Talks, pitches, and more. Ideas on Stage is a leading specialist in business presentations, working in English, French, Spanish, and Italian on both sides of the Atlantic. Phil also works with startup accelerators around Paris on helping entrepreneurs give better and more engaging pitches. In this episode, Phil shares with us vital information about creating a pitch for your startup, but not just one pitch. He also discusses his forthcoming book, The Business Presentation Revolution, how not to bore your audience to tears with your slides, and so much more. So without further ado, here's episode two with Phil Wakenell. So we're here today with Phil Wakenell as part of our expert series. Good morning, Phil. Good morning. So, Phil, you've done a lot of speaking with startups. You've coached a lot of startups and you talk about pitches. In particular, you talk about the three elements of a successful pitch. I'd love for you to to tell us more about that because I think it's a really important issue. Okay, so the three elements that I always say any startup entrepreneur has to include in their pitch They make up the acronym MVP. Now, we know MVP is minimum viable product, or if you take it in sports, it means most valuable player. But here, the most valuable player is the magic, the vision, and the passion. You have to have those in your pitch. Take an investor pitch to start with. You've got to have some magic to show the investor. Mm -hmm. If you haven't got anything amazing, something that's going to make the investor sit up and say, wow, I've never seen that before. I'd like to see it again. That's something special. If you haven't got anything magical to show to an investor, then don't waste your time. Don't waste their time. Go away, find something and come back when you've got it. Because if they won't say, wow, then they're not going to be opening their checkbooks. The second thing is vision. You need to have a big vision. Investors actually lose their money nine times out of 10, eight times, seven times, whatever, but they lose their money a lot. They want to take bets to win big. If they win small, then they're not going to be recouping their other investments. They need that one time out of 10 to be a big win. So you've got to show you have a big vision. You've got to show that you know what it's going to take to succeed in your marketplace and more than that, to transform your marketplace. When Travis Kalanick was pitching Uber, do you think he would have pitched that as saying, well, we are going to be a reasonably successful taxi company in one company, right? We're gonna, we are going to transform uh, urban movement in Silicon Valley. No, he had a very big vision and that was what helped to create the success of the company or to create the platform for it. So you need to show how you are going to transform your market and how you are gonna create a big future for you and your company. If you don't have a big vision, you need to think bigger. And then the third thing is passion. Because passion is contagious. The only thing more contagious than passion is boredom. 
If you don't look like you're actually really enthusiastic about your company, if you don't seem like you really care or you want to be there, or you're going to be saying, well, yeah, we've got a great team. Yeah, look at the... Uh, you've got to actually sound like you mean it. You've got to have that enthusiasm. You've got to have that motivation. If as a startup entrepreneur, you can't have passion for your company, for your clients, and for your product, well, no one else is going to have that passion for you. So you need to spread that. You need to show that you care, show that you really believe it, and then they'll start believing it too. So magic, vision, and passion. And so you build this, this pitch. You've got one pitch. Is that how it works? You have one pitch, one size fits all? Or how do people create a pitch and that works for investors, that works for sales prospecting, that works for everything? Generally, one size fits nobody. <laughs> you need to be very, very clear about that. I, first time I see a group of entrepreneurs, I will ask them, have you got a pitch? And they will say, yes, I've got a pitch. And they, they think they're, making, they're giving me the right answer. And then I'll say, okay, how many pitches have you got? And they're like, uh, well, I've got a pitch. No, you need to have a pitch for each individual audience on each specific day you're presenting because the context is different, the audience is different. And at the end of the day, it's never your pitch. It's theirs. It belongs to the audience. You're not there for you. You're not there to show how great you are. You are there to transform your audience in some way. Right. You are there to change something they believe, something they feel, something they do. And that's the same with any presentation that you ever give in your life, even if it's just a job interview, for example. If you're going to a job interview, you want those people, the, the interviewer on the other side, to be believing that you have what it takes to be successful in that company, to feel positive about you and to feel trusting that you are the, the right kind of person for that company. And you want them to do something. You want them, therefore, to make that hiring decision and uh, shake your hand. If at the end of the interview, they know everything there is to know about you, what you've done in the past, but they don't believe or feel or do those things, you've failed. If at the end of the interview, they don't know so much, but they believe you're the right candidate, they trust you, they have that right feeling, and they hire you, then you've succeeded. So in any pitch, you've got to focus on the believing, the feeling, the doing. You're pitching to an investor. What do you want them to believe? This company has a bright future. The team in charge of this company is really professional and very trustworthy. I feel good about this company. I feel trusting. I feel enthusiastic. I feel motivated. And what do I do? Well, it would be nice to ask them to sign a check straight away, but generally most investors <laughs> won't do that. But at least they might invite you for a second meeting with some of their associates so that they can go deeper, look into your business plan and see how they can take you further. So you've got to focus on those things. And you can't do that with a one-size-fits-all pitch. It's got to be personalized for a particular audience on a particular day. And an investor pitch is completely different from a client pitch. At the very basic level, with a client, you're trying to explain how you can save them money or solve some kind of problem for them or whatever, uh, basically give them a good value solution. With the investors, you're to some extent trying to say how much money you're going to screw out of your clients. Now, <laughs> that's simplifying it and possibly being a little aggressive, but... These are two opposite sides of the question. And so you, you don't mistake your client for an investor. And very often a, a mistake I see is that people will try to sell their product to an investor. Right. They will make a pitch to an investor as if they are a client and make them want to buy. That's not it at all. Right. They just have to understand that whoever your client is would buy.
Right. And even, even when you're speaking with a customer or a prospect, people don't buy products. People don't buy products. They buy, you've got a trusted relationship with them. You, it's, it's a, they're buying more than just a product because there's tons of product, especially in the, in the high-tech uh, business. You've got shelfware from one end to the globe to the other. It's, uh, the, there's tons of junk out there, but people are buying. They're buying. You have to have more of a relationship, I think, when you're talking to people. That's absolutely right. They're they're buying the trust. They're buying yeah. the feeling that they have. They're yeah. buying the yes, I get a nice feeling because I'm buying an Apple product versus a product from a, a lesser uh, manufacturer or whatever. It's like yeah, I feel good about this. So right. partly it's the feeling, but it's also important to remember that they're not buying a product, even if they yeah they have the feeling. Therefore, they pick up your product or they they decide to choose your service. They're buying a solution. They're always buying a solution. So if you're selling a drill, people aren't buying a drill. They are buying holes. They are buying an, an ability to create holes. And it's very important that you think about their problem in the first place. One of the first startup entrepreneurs we coached was a fantastic guy called Clément Casalou. He was the founder of DocTracker. He managed to sell that company for a very large amount of money. So he did very well for himself. He's now running Techstars in Boston. So if you're listening out there, hi, Clément. Uh, and he said this wonderful thing once, which I've remembered, and uh, I encourage everyone to remember this. Never fall in love with your product. Fall in love with your client's problem. It's always vital to really understand who is your client and what is their problem? What is their need? What is it that keeps them awake at night? What is it they can't do that you can help them to do? Right. And if you're pitching, there are many elements you can put in a pitch, but one of the key ones is the problem of your client. And always talk about the problem before you start talking about your solution, before you start talking about how you're going to solve that problem. Because until the audience cares about the problem, they won't listen to your solution. So solution important, but the problem is absolutely key. What do you find are the biggest obstacles for startup people when they're, they're trying to get going with pitches, whether it's to uh, investors, whether it's to prospects? What obstacles do have? Because you, you've coached a lot of people. You, you do a lot of work with, uh, at NUMA, different tech events. You've written a book about this, which we want to talk about that. What are the obstacles that you see after doing this for years? Well, when it comes to startups, the, the number one obstacle is time. Because when you're a startup entrepreneur, you have multiple hats. You have to be running the company. You have to be looking for finance. You have to be managing, hiring people. You've got all of these different responsibilities. Mm -hmm. And trying to set aside time to imagine and create this great pitch ends up being very, very difficult to do. But it is, I'm not saying it's a full-time job, but it does take time to create a pitch. A good presentation, I mean, well, any presentation is hard work. It's either hard work for you as the presenter, or it ends up being hard work for your audience, right? right? Don't make it hard on them, or they'll end up making it hard on you. So you've <laughs> got to put in that hard work. But the number one obstacle that I find is time. So it's very difficult for them to make that time. This is where, when we're working with incubators or accelerators, it's fantastic that we will come in and we will give them a timetable. Like they will, I will give them a talk on how to make a great pitch. So they, they get all of the, let's say the, the, the theory and the inspiration in one go. But then afterwards, a couple of weeks later, I or one of my colleagues will come back in 
and we'll listen to them pitch. So that gives them a timetable. It gives them a sense of urgency. And it's like, okay, I know I have to prepare my pitch for that. And what that means is when they have 14 days to prepare their pitch, they will prepare it on the 13th evening. <laughs> that makes sense to me, I but understand. At, but at least they will do it. Yeah. And that actually helps them to move ahead. And when they realize that the hard work actually pays dividends, it actually does create something great which will help them, then it's much easier for them to make the time for it later. But other than that, no, time is the number one obstacle. And do you find, because you're, you're British, you've worked with American companies, you're, you're here in France now, do you find cultural differences with this process? Uh, do some countries, people in some countries, they shy away from saying things, they say things? Uh, how, do you, how do you view that issue? There are a number of things there. The first thing I would say is that uh, in France in particular, the French tend to be quite reserved. Mm -hmm. Whereas in America, if you don't say how awesome you are, no one will believe it. Okay? <laughs> now, I don't like generalizing because you talk about America and, well, unfortunately, Silicon Valley and New York are completely different. And then you look at everything in the middle and that's completely different too. So it's very hard to generalize. But if you look simply between a Silicon Valley pitch and a, and a Parisian type pitch, right then you will see that in Silicon Valley, people will generally want to hear who you are before they hear what you do. Right. So you would probably present your team first. In France, people presenting the team, it tends to be a kind of an afterthought. It's a kind of like, and by the way, here, are, here is the team, let me present my people. So an American investor knows the team is absolutely key because they're not investing in a project, they're mm -hmm. not investing in a product, they're not, not investing in an idea, they are investing in people. They are investing in a team and they need to know that they can trust you with their money. In France, it tends to be, my idea is great, my product is great, therefore, that's all you should need to know. And by the way, here's my team, which is really not appropriate. The good thing I have found, and I've seen this evolution over the last six years, most of the large investment firms in France now that are interested in startups, they really, really get it. They are much more like the American investors. They right. understand tech. Six years ago, most investors in France, and I'm, I'm probably going to insult a few here, but if you feel insulted, then I'm not talking about you. Uh, <laughs> but many of them would be, and they, the, the, these people know who, who I'm talking about, it will be, you'll be talking about a smartphone app or something, and they will be like, oh, yes, a smartphone. Uh, my grandson has a smartphone, and uh, they seem to be quite popular. Whereas nowadays, if you're talking about a smartphone app, they'll be talking, okay, have you done A-B testing on your user interface? Right. And... They really get it. They understand. So you can talk tech to them and you can talk about the existing success models that, that have come out of France or America or Britain or wherever else. And they really understand it. The one thing I would say to French entrepreneurs who are going to be pitching outside France is the one thing you need to take off of your pitch is the school you went to. Because in France, it's important. You've been to HEC or Polytechnique or whatever. These are great schools. I love them. I teach there. But no one outside of France has ever heard of them. There's only one school that anyone outside France has ever heard of, and that's the Sorbonne, right. which is not necessarily the most wonderful business school in the, in the world. All right? They have Celsa, which is great. But, but at the end of the day, you've been to HEC. Fantastic. This is the great place to learn how to run a business. Go to Silicon Valley. They've never heard of it. Right. So take it off there. They don't really care whether you went to school, which school you went to. It's much more meritocratic rather than simply uh, an, an item on your CV. So that's something French need to take off. Right. 
Now, have you found, you know, there's there's been a lot of discussion lately about some of the problems in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, Google's having some some bad publicity at the moment for, you know, and, and I think it's it's deserved. Do you find, are, are there differences between the way men present and women present? Is that something that you've noticed? There are very often differences. Again, I don't like to generalize. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think one of the most difficult things that women have to face when they're presenting is the judgment of people. And frankly, Hillary Clinton paid the price for this in the right. recent presidential election in America, uh, simply because women are judged differently. It's not a question of their performance right. or whatever. It's simply the judgment. Right. And actually, women in the audience tend to be just as judgmental as right. the men, if not more. Right. So they really have a tightrope to to tread between the two extremes, which aren't that extreme, one is to be seen as to be too forward, too aggressive, too mm-hmm. masculine, yeah. right? It's like, she's shouting. Hillary had this. It's like, she's shouting. It's like, well, hey, if, if Donald Trump or John McCain or Barack Obama raise their voice and speak in a much louder voice like that, then they're seen as powerful. A woman is seen as shouting. Right. And the other extreme can be to be more demure, more controlled, more reserved, more feminine, and therefore perceived as weak which again is unfair. Both extremes are unfair, but it's very hard to tread that fine line. And uh, I'm delighted that on our team at Ideas on Stage, we have uh, Marion Chapsal, who is absolutely fantastic. You really should interview Marion because uh, she will talk about this Goldilocks effect, you know, the <laughs> like the three bears or the three bowls of porridge. It's like this. <laughs> it's too hot. It's too cold. It's just right in the middle. Right. She helps women to find that just right line. And I would encourage you to. Uh, yeah, because I think that's a really big issue when you look at men versus women talking to VCs. Women get less money. They ask for less money. They get less money. They are judged differently. And I think it's uh, uh, I think it's a really important subject because there. Mm. I, I I think after so many years, uh, I'm, I'm a bit fed up with the whole tech bro culture, and 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 it needs to change for a lot of reasons. Absolutely. Uh, so so yeah, that is an interesting subject. What I would say is that many of the best pitches I have seen have been delivered by women. I, I what I find. And again, I don't like to generalize, but I have found in the past that generally women have more respect for their audience. Mm-hmm. So partly not running over is that. That means they prepare very well. There can be a difficulty daring to speak, and that's possibly why women ask for less money. Uh, they maybe don't feel they're worth so much money or whatever, or they don't dare so much. And I would simply encourage women to say, yes, you are worth it. I've seen so many great, successful female startup entrepreneurs. And it's a pleasure to work with them. And I would encourage uh, any uh, lady who's interested in tech, who is interested in, in startups, go for it, right? Dare to stand up, dare to speak out, dare to shine, create your own personal brand and people will love it. Yeah, totally agree. We had a guest uh, the other day, a female startup CEO and lots of empathy, which I think is a big issue. In sales, I, I worked in sales for years, and I think a lot of guys in in tech sales are very aggressive, uh, too aggressive, and they want to talk instead of listening to what a prospect needs. And 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 you know, as a general rule, I've seen good and bad, but I think as a general rule, women are really good salespeople. They they listen much better than than men as a general rule, and that comes into the presentation too. You have to. Always know who your audience is. Mm, Absolutely. And I mean, that's one of the key things. Any presentation has to start with ABC. So long before you get on stage, long before you start thinking about what slides you might have, you have to think of your ABC. Who is your audience? Not just what's the title on their business card, but who are these as individuals, as Mm -hmm. human beings? 
What makes them tick? The B is their burning need, right? What is keeping them awake at night? What is their issue? If you're talking to an investor, what is missing in their portfolio, right? Look at the companies they've invested in already. Look at their burning need. What is missing in their portfolio? Uh, is their fund actually going to be finishing soon? Is it due to start? Have they just raised a new fund and therefore they've got to be finding the, the appropriate companies for it? Or is it an angel investor who has a particular date that they have to have invested in in order to, uh, as the French would call it, defiscalize in order to basically to avoid uh, paying tax on their wealth, right? right? That's somewhere in June for, uh, for uh, in France. Like they have a burning need. I have to find a startup that I can invest my money in because otherwise I'm going to pay more tax. So what is their burning need? And the third thing is the context, right? What is the context? What is the time of year? Uh, is there someone pitching before you? Is there someone pitching after you? Is it like a pitch event where there are 10 people pitching? Is it just you in a room? How long do you have? And respect that time, which is always important. So all of these things are key. Audience, burning need, context. Once you've understood that, then you can start preparing their pitch, not your pitch, their pitch. Phil, you said you've been helping startups here for about six years. Obviously, you must be completely out of your mind, crazy to think there's any business in France. We all know there's nothing. There's no opportunity here. There's no startups. Are you, are you, are you in fact, out of your mind? Uh, I think we're on a different planet because as far, <laughs> as, as far as I can see, Paris is a fantastic place for startups, right? If you look on the other side of Paris to where we are now, down uh, near the uh, Gare d'Austerlitz, they've just opened Station F, which is right. the world's largest incubator for startups. It's like it's not just an incubator. It's a mecca for startups right. run by uh, our old friend Roxanne Varza, who we worked with uh, many years ago at Microsoft. So there, I think Paris is a vibrant place for startups. And people talk about the administration of running a company in France. Well, you know what? Yes, there's some admin. But if it's the admin that puts you off, you shouldn't be running a company. Right? right? Yeah. If you can negotiate French admin, then you're going to be fine pretty much anywhere in the world. That'll okay. be good. But the great thing in France is there is so much help for startups. Right. And there, there is an ecosystem here. There are great people uh, at Business France uh, who we work with to train uh, we, we train startups uh, that get sent abroad under the French tech pavilion, right? Very shortly, we'll be uh, training the startups to pitch for the Web Summit, which is going to happen in Lisbon in the fall. Uh, and also, we'll be uh, training them for the Consumer Electronics Show, etc. So there's all these startups that go out there, sent by Business France, supported mm -hmm. by Business France, to help uh, these French companies to export. There's also France Digital, which is a great association which really helps uh, create an environment for French startups. It builds this community. Uh, there's France Digital Day, which uh, is happening in September, uh, where they're going to have an unconference. So every year they do something innovative. Uh, and they also promote the use of English so that the French companies don't just look within their own borders. They actually imagine, yes, the world is my audience, the world is my market. And English is the international language for that. So, no, France is a great place for startups. Now, we, we talked a bit earlier about, uh, I mentioned briefly, you have a book. Tell us about your book uh, that, that's coming out. Okay, well, the book's called The Business Presentation Revolution. Now, there's been plenty of books about presentations over the past few years. The one that started the presentation revolution, I think, was Presentation Zen, which came out 10 years ago, uh, written by Gar Reynolds, who's an American who lives in Japan former Apple employee, Gar is a fantastic guy, and he really understood that if you marry the 
Japanese principles of simplicity, of restraint, of naturalness, together with the typical Western presentation, you can get some really great results, right? You practice restraint in the, uh, the, the preparation in not saying too much. You practice uh, simplicity in the design of your slides. Something simple is, is good. Simplicity is the ultimate sophistication, as uh, Leonardo da Vinci said. And you practice naturalness in the way that you speak. So this is great. What we have found is that many businesses then think, okay, this is good, but how can I actually apply this? Presentation Zen was an approach. What I'm proposing in the business presentation revolution is a method. I'll come back to that method in a moment. But first, let me explain why we're talking about a revolution. Generally, we've been approaching presentations the wrong way around. We've always been thinking it's my presentation. Well, no, as I said earlier, it's their presentation. It belongs to the audience. We've always been thinking the main aim of my presentation is to inform the audience, to transfer knowledge from my brain to theirs. Whereas, in fact, if you need to do that, you'd be better off giving them a document and a coffee because <laughs> it's far, far more effective. We forget most of what we hear within about 30 seconds. And if you don't believe me on that, try to re repeat what I said 30 seconds ago. <laughs> Any chance? No, right? But we remember a lot more of what we read. And this is why, for example, at Amazon, most meetings will start with 10 minutes or so where they're sitting in silence reading a document that's been prepared. After that, they understand everything that they need to know. They ask questions, they discuss, nobody gets up to present, and meetings take half as long as they did before. Uh, we've actually applied that in uh, the Société Générale, a big French bank, and uh, they've found great success there. And if they can do it, then frankly, I'm pretty sure anybody can, because right. that's a very traditional company. Well, it's, you don't have to be uh, an innovative new company like Amazon to make this work. It really works well. So you've got to be thinking, no, a presentation is not about informing the audience. It's about transforming them. It's about changing what they believe. It's changing what they feel. It's changing what they do. And you only give them the information they need in order to make that transformation. So those are some big uh, revolutions. The other revolutions I would talk about is that previously it was acceptable to be boring, right? It was okay. I'm just giving a quarterly finance review. It's perfectly fine. I'm just going, it's going to be boring. Well, no, you can't be boring anymore because nowadays, not only does everyone have a smartphone in their pocket, which means that their emails or their Facebook or their Angry Birds or whatever can be more interesting than what you're, what you're speaking about. So that has changed things. But also we've got the Generation Y, we've got the millennials who are coming into the workplace who naturally, because they've grown up with all this technology, they have a much lower attention span. And in fact, I would say that it's not a problem. It's just that they have a much uh, lower threshold for mediocrity. Right. So if it's boring, they will be like, OK, just send me a document and I'll do something else. Right. I'll do something more interesting instead. So you have to be interesting. And there is an interesting way to present anything. And so that's where we get into the method that we've produced, which is called P-score or the presentation score method. And presentation score, it's all about an acronym. Right? So score stands for simple, clear, original, relevant and enjoyable. Any presentation should succeed in those five characteristics. And in fact, you can apply that to what you're saying, to what you're showing with your slides, and also how you're saying it. So if you think about score in terms of what you're saying, simple means you're not saying too much, right? You don't try to say too much because they'll forget it. So make sure that your message is simple. Clear means that the message is clear, but also you have a clear structure for what you're saying, right? With a very clear introduction, that explains perhaps what you're going to be saying, 
but at the very least makes them want to listen. And that's the main aim of your introduction, make them want to listen. So clear structure and a very important conclusion, which explains clearly what you want them to do afterwards. Far too many presentations finish up with, oh, uh, that was my last slide. Anyone got any questions? And that's not a conclusion. The conclusion is half the value of your presentation. It explains to people, it reminds them, this is what I've said, this is why I have said it to you, and this is what I want you to do with it. And that's so, so important. So that's the clear part. It needs to be original. If your presentation sounds or looks like something they've heard before, then they won't pay nearly as much attention. It's like if you're watching a rerun on television, well, uh, maybe you won't. You'll watch the unreleased episodes of Game of Thrones, but will you go back and watch series one? Ah, maybe not, right? Because you've seen it before. We're not interested in what we've seen before. Therefore, show them something original, which has an element which is new to them and makes them curious and interested. It's got to be relevant to them. That's really important. So simple, clear, original, relevant. If you've done your ABCs, if you've really understood what makes your audience tick, if you've understood the context, if you've understood their burning needs, then it will be their presentation and it will be relevant to them. And then the E is to make it enjoyable, right? Like I said before, you have no excuse to be boring. If, you, if you're going to make it hard for them, they'll make it hard for you. So be interesting, find a way to make it interesting, make, a, make it engaging, and you will get their attention. You will not get any action from them if you don't get their attention, and you won't get their attention if they don't enjoy listening to you. So simple, clear, original, relevant, and enjoyable. And you can apply that to your slides and the way you speak as well. So that's what uh, goes into the business presentation revolution. And it's intended really as the Bible for any business presenter from the junior right up to the boardroom. And the results will be very different depending on what kind of presentation you give. We apply this method at Ideas on Stage for TED Talks. We apply them for startup pitches, but we also apply them to boardroom presentations. The results are very different, but the method is exactly the same. And we've basically honed this method over the last seven years, and it really, really delivers results. Now, do you find you mentioned uh, uh, millennials and, and having a different, having a shorter uh, span of attention? Do you find that? Millennials are better doing presentations than older people. Is, do you find any differences with age? I really enjoy working with young people, actually, because uh, they have perhaps less forgotten their creativity. We're all born creative. School tends to sti like stifle all that creativity in mm. us, but it's a bit easier to tease it out of the younger people. Right. I also find millennials, you talk to them about the, uh, the importance of making your presentation short, doing a short pitch, four or five minutes, etc., and they get it. Take a 50-something person who's been in big company their whole life and say, you've got to do a presentation in five minutes. They'll go, what? Whereas young people will know very clearly that shorter presentations are more effective. Right. Imagine this. You're looking at your Facebook feed. Your friends have shared two videos. One of them lasts five minutes. The other one lasts 20 minutes. Both seem equally interesting. Which do you watch? It's a no-brainer, right? And it's very, very clear. The shorter the video, the more people will watch it. And it's the same with a presentation. If you can't say it in five minutes, you can't say it in 20. So it's really important to be able to get that message short. And in fact, when we're working with people to prepare their presentations, and when we're doing this in a training course, we will start off with an elevator pitch. We will start off, okay, you need to do it, make it simple. You've got 30 seconds. You've got 70 words. That's about what you can say in 30 seconds. What do you need to say in order to achieve your objectives? And then you can blow it up. It's much easier to take something small 
and blow it up like a balloon until it fills the time you have available, rather than take your one hour talk and try to cram it into a short period of time. And that's a mistake a lot of presenters make is to try to say, well, I've got my 15 minute pitch, so um, oh, I've got five minutes tomorrow. OK, well, I'll, I'll cut this out and I'll cut this out and I'll cut this out. And in the end, it, it looks like nothing in particular. It's not a great pitch. Much better off starting. OK, so I've got five minutes. What do I want to say in five minutes? And then maybe once you've worked out what you're going to say, you'll copy and paste some slides that you used before. But that's another revolution, by the way, which I didn't mention before. Generally, when in business, when you need to prepare a presentation, it's like, oh, God, I've got to prepare a presentation for tomorrow. I don't have very much time. Right. So they do this at the last minute. So I'm going to open my computer. I wait 30 seconds because I have Windows. And then <laughs> I'm talking to Apple people. Here. Um, and, and then uh, they'll open their PowerPoint and they will start typing. And 50 slides later, it's like, great, I've got all my bullet points. Fantastic. And then they'll go back and possibly add a few sub bullet points because it's not clear enough even to them. It certainly isn't going to be clear to the audience. Nobody remembers the bullet points that you show. They only remember how much they hate them. Oh. So that's no, there is no point doing that. But what people will tend to do is I've done my bullet point. I will then get in front of my audience. I will turn my back on them. I will look at the wall. I will read the bullet points mm. and then I will improvise around them. It's like it's my cheat sheet, right? Can you imagine? If any kind of uh, president decided that they were going to do a speech and they actually had the key points of their speech on the wall behind them, right? Sure, they'll use a teleprompter somewhere hidden in the audience, but they won't show it on the wall behind them. But we do this in business all the time. And it's crazy. And it really doesn't help. If you're going to be not preparing your talk like that, then it doesn't work. So the revolution is always work out what you're going to say and then work out how you want to illustrate it if you need to illustrate it. Right. And you don't always need slides. If you're going to be telling personal stories to your audience, which is always a very good thing to do, you probably don't need slides for that. Right. Yeah, I, I had worked uh, for someone years ago, and he he was the CEO of the company and created what became known as the slide of death. <laughs> Every time that would come up, you just, everyone, oh, no, not that slide again. Please let it die. It was so full of words and bullet points. Uh, the entire audience was try squinting their eyes, trying to figure out what does that say? And not even listening to him because it was such an eyesore. It was the worst thing I ever saw in my career. Awful. Yeah. And the thing is, of course, anyone who's presenting that seems to imagine that their audience can actually read and listen at the same time. Yeah. But we can't. The human brain does not work that way. Right? We cannot read and listen simultaneously. So all of the words you put on the wall behind you, it's an obstacle to the communication. And I mean, a lot of people talk to me about, well, so if PowerPoint is so bad, which, by the way, I don't think it is. It's the use of PowerPoint. But people talk to me, well, if PowerPoint's the problem, then how about Prezi? Right? What about Prezi? It's like, oh, it's modern. It's like oh, all singing, all dancing. It's fantastic. The thing is, I mean, Prezi, what it seeks to do, it does very, very well. The only problem is it's solving for me the wrong problem. And the main problem with presentations and any kind of pitch is the connection between the speaker and the audience. That connection got broken by PowerPoint. It got broken because people would find it very easy to produce large quantities of slides. So they produced a lot of slides with no effort and show them to the audience. And the audience is glued to the screen yeah. because they do not want you to advance the slide without them having read everything. 
And because of that, they're looking at the screen, they're reading, they're trying to listen in the background, but they're failing to read and failing to listen, and they really get nothing out of it at the end. And possibly the speaker will actually then print out all of their bullet points and give them to them, and they then have an illusion of understanding, which is completely useless six months later, because you've got some incomplete sentences, which mean nothing. So it's no good as a document, and it's no good as a slide. But you will find that uh, that happens so, so often in companies. And we've got to stop that. We've really got to stop that. And uh, the other thing you've got to be doing is really understanding, I probably need to be delivering documents to these people, right? I need to give them something to take away. And that document needs to be standalone and easy to understand for somebody who wasn't at the meeting. And so we've got to produce those documents and separately, if we need them, we produce slides. Sometimes startups will come to me and they will say, Phil, I've got a meeting with this uh, investor or with this company, et cetera. I'm going to have a lunch meeting. I need a pitch. I'm like, you're having a lunch meeting and you're going to be showing slides? This is not the right context. What you do need for any investor is a document because they will not make the decision on their own. They will show that document to to colleagues. They want to be saying, hey, I just had lunch with this guy. He's got a really cool startup. What do you think? And hand over a document that they can read and then understand. Bullet points don't do that. So the document is necessary. Sometimes the slides are actually optional. Well, I think a lot of people uh, who are afraid of presenting or who have always seen these terrible presentations, they hide behind the slides. They don't want people to be looking at them or Uh, listening to them. Absolutely. And that's a really important point. People will not want the audience's attention on them. I will talk to people about what I call the world's best slide, which is just a pure black slide. Hmm. It just it gives the illusion that the projector is projecting nothing and therefore the audience has nothing else to look at and they look right back at you as the speaker. But if you're a startup CEO and you don't want an audience looking at you, you've possibly chosen the wrong job. Right. Right? You really do need to be comfortable in the limelight. But don't get the impression that there are some people who are naturally born to this and I'm not, therefore I shouldn't be doing this. Get help. Seriously, the, the best speakers are the ones who know that it's a job that actually needs needs help. So get expert coaching, get somebody who is going to help you to be comfortable out, uh, out there on the stage and understand, and this is these are the words of the great uh, American uh, uh, philosopher and poet, uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He said, all of the great speakers were bad speakers at first. And that's fantastic advice for anybody because it's going to say that anybody can become a great speaker, but it does take work. And yes, it might take some coaching. It might take some uh, some work with a professional, but it's really a very worthwhile investment if you want to be a startup entrepreneur, because you're going to be pitching all the time, whether you're on stage, whether you're in a meeting room or whether you're at a cocktail with a glass in your hand, you're pitching, right? So they always said uh, the advice uh, from Xerox, which was a great sales school, always be selling. Well, the advice for any startup entrepreneur is ABP, always be pitching. When you work with startups, how long does it take? And, and I know it, it can really vary from person to person. Perhaps a B-school person might be more familiar with this than an engineering student. But how long do you typically work with them to coach them to become really good? What we will tend to do when we're working with accelerators is we'll probably work with them for about three hours. And we'll do that in three separate talks or three separate, not talks, but three separate um coaching sessions. The first one where we're really focusing on the content on what are they saying. The second one, maybe a week or two later when they've had a chance to go away and prepare, rehearse it a bit, but also prepare some slides. Then we'll 
dot the I's and cross the T's on the content and we'll help them with the slides. We'll give them some advice. Maybe that could be a little bit bigger. Maybe the color, color choice isn't right. Maybe you need a different font or whatever it might be. And then another week or two later, the third session where in theory, everything is ready and it's just really rehearsal and we're focusing on the speaker. Now, one hour is not a lot to be turning somebody who's never spoken on stage into a Steve Jobs. It doesn't happen that way. So some people need a little bit more coaching, uh, but a few like one or two hour sessions individually can work very well. When we're working with people in business and they have possibly a larger budget and they also have uh, like a perhaps less time constraint in terms of I've got this pitch competition or a demo day I have to do this for, we'll tend to spend 10 hours with each speaker. We'll have like five, two hour sessions and that can really produce some great results. Well, Phil, thank you very much. This was really helpful. I think they, I like your 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 MVP for pitching and, and all these ideas are, I think, very critical to success for any startup. How do you define success? Well, success for, for me as a presentation director, uh, helping people with their presentation, success is really seeing people on stage and seeing them succeed, right? It's seeing people who were perhaps afraid to get on stage and uh, they get up there and they do a great uh, a great pitch and they will get, I mean, if sometimes I've seen them get a standing ovation and when you can get a standing ovation, that's fantastic. So I'll be sort of standing there in the wings or maybe even in the audience. That gives me fantastic satisfaction. I always like to see the results of the work. So success for me really is seeing our clients succeed. Well, thanks so much. It's Thank been you. a pleasure. That wraps up another episode of the Radical Departures podcast. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and join us next time on Radical Departures. Radical Departures.